0: Welcome to the Grace Harbor Church Sermon Podcast. Grace Harbor Church is located in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. For more information, visit our website at ghokc.com. Morning, church. Uh, If you have your Bibles, if you have the Bibles in the seats in front of you, we're on page 966, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to read verses 14 through 17. This is what it says. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for, the, who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Would you pray with me? Father, we step into this today knowing that you are able to do whatever it is that you want to do. We also come with expectations and understandings and opinions and preferences. We even have a version of how we want this day to go. And regardless of whatever that might look like or however pure and real that might be or whatever we feel like we need, would you just help us to lay whatever it is that we brought in down at your feet this morning so that you can do your work. And we pray that we would cooperate with your spirit, with our mind, our body, our soul, our heart, with all that is in us. Would we just work together with your spirit to allow you to accomplish whatever it is that you choose to do in us. And Father, may you do great things for your kingdom through us as a result. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you guys for standing with me. So young is running the sound back there, and he told me if I made fun of anybody today, he would mute me. So you guys are all kind of safe. Not really. Hey, listen, I do want to say this. I want to say thank you guys for being so appreciative and gracious to listening to me over the last couple of weeks. This is my last Sunday to do this. And then we're going to get back to our regularly scheduled programming. And Pastor Nathan, I know that taking me on in long doses can be kind of a shock to the system. And so I appreciate you guys for doing that and being so gracious in doing that. I want to do something today. I I want to tell you kind of what I learned early on in ministry. I read this somewhere, and I don't know if Spurgeon said it. Everything and gets attributed to Spurgeon so I really don't know that he's the one who said it or not but he said that whenever we do this whenever we preach we ought to do it so as not only to be understood but we ought to speak so as not to be misunderstood you follow me okay so we should do this in all communication probably right have you ever tried this though have you ever tried to speak so as to be understood, but also so as not to be misunderstood in a climate such as ours? You would realize really quickly how difficult that can be sometimes. And we swing for the fences when we get up here. I mean, we do, right? It doesn't matter if it's John or if it's Nathan or if it's Thomas. All of us kind of get up here, and when we do this, we're aiming so that you not only understand us, but so that you don't misunderstand us. However, we only have so much time, right? And so I can think of a lot of things that I've said in the past couple of weeks that I, I could have been easily misunderstood, and there's some things that I probably should have said in different settings for sure I just sometimes I'm a goofball if you didn't notice this and so that kind of comes out in my character and in the, everything that I do so just thinking about some of that so what I want to do this morning is I want to just I want to be clear as I can possibly be I'm going to lay all my cards up on the table up front okay so I want to let you know and what I'm about to tell you is my opinion okay my perspective you don't have to necessarily agree with everything I'm about to tell you I'll even go one step further and tell you you really don't need what I think We need what he thinks more than what I think. But I kind of want to set this up as to why I believe this text is so important for us and the things that we've been talking about over the last couple of Sundays are very important for us. So let me just say this, okay? I believe that the most fitting thing for the church right now, today, in this present moment, is to look like the world that is to come. I'm going to say that one more time, I'm going to say it slower, that way you can kind of wrap your minds around it. I think the best thing that any church could ever do is to resemble and look like and practice and be like the world that is to come. So in Revelation chapter seven, verse number nine, you don't have to get there. You don't have to read that, but here's what it says. After this, I looked, I beheld, and a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with their palm branches in their hands. What this means is people from every sphere of life in history, in culture, in politics, I mean, just everything from every social status and class, All of these people are gathered together from all sorts of different walks of lives, And they are gathered around the throne of God. And everything that once divided them and separated them and distinguished them, all of those things have now become subordinate to the one thing that binds them, and that is the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And so I believe the best thing the church could ever do right now is to look like that one that is to come okay, where we just come into this, and I believe that this is what Paul is after in Ephesians chapter three that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, that God, through his infinite mercy, has brought together in the church people who are all kinds of different, people who aren't the same, they don't see the same, they don't vote the same, they don't even sin the same. Listen, man, I, I love you people, but you guys sin in some weird ways, okay? I sin in some weird ways, right? We don't do everything the same way, and that's okay, okay? But what happens in the Pauline theology of the church is that God has brought together these people from all different walks of life, Jew and Gentile. He brings them together. And all of the things that distinguish them, they don't disappear. It's not that they don't matter. It's that they take a back seat to the one thing that binds them. And the one thing that binds them is the grace of Jesus Christ. So what makes us family is not because we see everything the same way. You know I'm going to make fun of my kids at some point, okay? So... If you don't know this, I only come to church here because I love the band. Okay? Bradley Kids, you guys are in on that too. But the George Boys, if you didn't know this, the George Boys are mine. they belong to me. I'm responsible for that. I apologize up front. okay I have very let me say this. I have very specific driving preferences. Let me say that again. I have very specific driving preferences. Anybody with me? What are your driving preferences? Mine are either get where you're going or get out of my way, okay? Those are my preferences. I believe that we get on the highway to drive. I mean, I just, okay, I got some issues, and I feel myself regressing into those issues right now as we speak. However, one of my sons, who shall remain nameless, there are only two to pick from, so you got a 50% shot at getting it right, drives like a grandma... And if I could find something in the word of God that would allow me to punish him for that, I would punish him for that right now in front of everybody. I have my preferences, okay? And they're very real to me. I'm a very passionate driver. I'm a very passionate driver. Some would call it road rage. I call it passion, okay? My son, however, which shall remain nameless, <clears throat> okay, doesn't share the same philosophy with me and driving. He's probably gonna make it on the road a whole lot longer than I will, as a matter of fact. However... It doesn't change the fact that we're family. Whether he drives like me, whether he thinks like me, whether he votes like me. Now, I'm going to try to fix all that for him as he gets older, right? Whether he parents like me or not, and he probably won't. He'll probably learn from my mistakes, right? And so we're shooting for all of that. We're hoping for all of that. But the reality is the things that bind me to those boys are not the things that you see on the outside. Listen, family of God, the things that bind us in this body are not the things that we see on the outside. They are what Jesus has done on the inside. And if everything that distinguishes us on the outside would bow to that which is on the inside, we would be better off for it. So I say all that to say this, that in this culture and in this climate, this is one of the most difficult things for churches to be, a fellowship of difference. We just live in a world that is hostile and volatile. And as a matter of fact, I'm gonna use the term hatred towards anybody who's not like us. And that doesn't matter what side of the fence, on any fence you're on, it seems like we just exist in this moment in history right now where everybody thinks that the other body is their enemy and there is no room for, for us to come together in any kind of harmony that lays any of that kind of stuff down. I don't believe, don't misunderstand what I'm saying, I don't believe in unity at the expense of truth. I mean, I'm at, see, we have to, say all these things because somebody will run with it and run in the wrong direction so please just understand what i'm saying what i believe is this is that it is very hard to live into this pauline theology of the church and it requires vast amounts of grace it is so difficult to live in a family of difference that many people have opted for a much easier version of church than this We attend churches where everybody is like us, where everything is the same for us, where everything feels safe and everything feels easy. This is the way church operates now. Do they look like me? Do they think like me? Do they feel like me? Do they vote like me? All of these things. This is what we're looking for in a church. And what we've done is we've forgotten that other people who are different than us actually help our growth. I mean, this is true, guys. Listen, Barna surveyed America and the least likely people to believe that other cultures enriched our culture culture. were Christians. We believe that, hey, man, if we bring people who don't think like us, look like us, operate like us, that that won't help us, that that will hurt us. Of all people, the least welcoming people to people who weren't like them was us. Now, listen, I'm speaking in general terms here. I don't want you to be offended by what I'm saying. If you do, please come talk to me. We could Listen, don't, don't be afraid to talk to us, right? I mean, this is really, this is, we, we don't want to be, I mean, we want to be mature about this, right? So if I say something that doesn't come out right, talk to me. I'm, I'm fine with that. I'm a grown man. I'm 40, right? Anybody feel that right there? Okay, we've got some uh, Mike Gundy in the house there. I'm a little over 40, uh, but that is not the place to amen. So, um, and what I, ha- what I think happens is this, is because we're opting for this lesser, easier version of church, what happens is this, is that, I mean, the fallout of this is great. So let me give you two areas of fallout, okay? I'm building this front porch, and I'm going to get somewhere, I promise. Here's, the, here's one fallout. Because we're opting for all of these cultural preferences, and they're being elevated above biblical principle and all of these things, and we're kind of congregating in our likeness, what we're doing is this, is we're confusing people as to what it really means to follow Jesus. We've elevated our preferences, our opinions, and our, and our cultures above even that of what it means to follow Jesus, so much so that many people have no clue what it looks like to follow Jesus anymore. So let me give you a, for instance, from our perspectives class last week. There was a guy there, he was a missionary in Africa for a long time, and he was working with Muslim people, and he was talking about their faith, and one of the things that he asked these Muslim believers, they were born-again believers, I meant they trusted Christ, their theology was deep and rich and pure, and it was impressive. One of the things he asked them was, do you call yourself? Christians. And here's what they said. Absolutely not. And it kind of takes you back, right? You're like, why don't they call themselves Christians? If they believe in Jesus, why don't they call themselves Christians? That's what they should do, right? Here's what he said. If I call myself or refer to myself as a Christian, my neighbor will think that I no longer love him because, hold on, Because what they associate with the term Christian is all of the political West. Hold on. Because I don't think, again, this is my thought, my opinion, my perspective. I don't think that is a foreign country problem anymore. I think that is very much a here and now problem for us. I'm gonna say something, and again, I don't want you to get offended. But for many in America right now, Christian is synonymous with Donald Trump and politics. This is not a critique on what you think of Donald Trump. This is a critique on what we think of faith. If our faith is ever misidentified with a politician and his politics, regardless of who that politician is or what his politics are, and they are not associated with Christ and his redemption, then that ought to stir something deep within us. I don't care what side of this you fall on, friend. Listen, if we ever are identified more by a person than by the person of Jesus Christ, we've gotten off track somewhere, right? Okay, so we're good. We're on the same foot, right? So I believe that some of the fallout of this is that we're confusing what it really means to follow Jesus. I believe what is also a fallout of this is that people by the droves, listen to me, by the droves, are leaving the church because we have elevated cultural preference above biblical truth. And so much so, we have hurt those who do not share our cultural preferences and they are walking, please. People are walking away from the very thing that God put in place to shape them and form them and heal them and they're walking away because they're looking for healing, and all that it does is cement their wounding. It doesn't heal them. And the fallout of not pressing into this kind of theology of a safe place to be different. Listen, here's why I'm saying all this. I'm saying all this because I want so much better for Grace Harbor. Okay? What if... What if we stepped into this cultural moment, in this space, in this time, in this community, in Northwest Oklahoma City, and we were this love-driven, life-giving body that embodied this radical unity of Ephesians chapter 3? What if we were so radically transformed by the redeeming work of God's grace that this would be a place and that this would be a people where it was safe to be different because it is not our similarities that bind us. It is our Savior that binds us. What if we were that kind of people? What if we stood out in this sea of hostility and hatred and division and dehumanization? What if we stood out as an island of hope and grace and love, and we resembled not just what is here, but what is to come there? What if? So, the question is how? How do we do this? How do we actually live into this? And I will tell you this it is not by giving you the answers to every question. We talked a little bit about this last week, right? We just can't answer every question for you. You got to have some space to form your opinions. And I would say this it's really not even a matter of answers. I'm going to take it a step further. I don't even think it's necessarily as much a matter of actions, though actions are involved. I believe that for us to lean into this and press into this, it is a matter of who we are in our hearts. It is not just about the kinds of things that we do, it is about the kinds of people that we are. And I think down deep in us, what we're after here is we're after being this, a certain kind of people. And so what that means is this, we've talked a little bit about this in the last couple of weeks, just hit these briefly, it means that we see ourselves Accurately. We understand that we're in process. We're in journey. We haven't got it all figured out. Listen, if you don't know this about your faith yet, if you don't have more questions about your faith now than what you did 20 years ago, you may not be doing this thing right, man. I've got more questions now than I've got answers. And it not only means that we see ourselves accurately, it means that we enjoy grace deeply because it is that that God is not worn out or exhausted with us, that even though our journey is long and it's filled with setbacks and detours, that his heart towards us is ever grace upon grace. Grace. Because it is only people who are overwhelmed by grace that live this out. And so finally, here's what I want to get to today. Living out this redemptive unity, this redemptive community, demands not only that we see ourselves accurately, and not only that we understand grace deeply, but it it demands that we see everybody else out there redemptively. Okay? And so here's what we're saying. We jump into 2 Corinthians chapter 5. There's a lot going on here. We don't have time for this, but... Um, so depending on which version you read, if you get down to verse number 16, you read this from now on, what's the next word? Therefore, if you don't know this, you should know this a trick to reading your scripture, right? Is anytime you see the word, therefore, what do we do? We check to see what it's there for. I've just, I just became of my son, proud of my son who drives like a grandma. You see this mixed bag, right? You see this mixed bag, just like, like redeem me right there in the moment, okay? Uh, I forgive you, son. I will love you forever. You have earned my approval. Um, okay, <laughs> sorry, I digress so easy. Um, okay, therefore, here's, here's what we're trying to do. We're trying to trace the, the argument of Paul, and, the, and so what we do is we use this word, therefore, to look and see what it's there for. However, here's the problem with Paul. Have you ever noticed that preachers are long-winded? Not an amen, Okay? okay, I'll give you a nod, right? Paul says, therefore, like six times in the last two chapters. So he's got a running argument that's going on, and it's kind of hard to trace. At least it's, it's hard for me to follow all the ups and downs and keep all the pieces together, so we won't take all the time to do that. Here's what's going on. Paul is having to, at some point, at least defend his credibility as an apostle, Okay. For whatever reason, somebody is attacking him. Paul's got, if you don't know this about the Apostle Paul, he's got detractors and attackers on every side of every issue. They think he's a nut. They think he's crazy, and they're looking at this guy like he's weird. Some people think it's because he's too zealous. Some people think it's because his belief. Some people, because it's his methods. Some people think that Paul's too short. Don't do it. Don't even think about doing it, Okay. I feel you, Brother Paul. I feel you, my friend, okay? Some people just think he doesn't look the part, right? He doesn't look like, a, he's not cool and clean and freshly shaven like Pastor Nathan. He's just not that guy, right? He's, he may be old, he may be kind of hunched over, he may, he may have eye problems, Paul, I feel you, bro. Um, I mean, we're just, right? So uh, they're they're looking at him and they're detracting and they're attacking him and they're uh, saying all these kinds of stuff and he's kind of defending himself in all of this. And he's talking to the Corinthian believers and he says, listen, guys, if anybody knows my heart for ministry and my heart for God, it's you. I don't need to commend myself again to you. You are my letter of commendation. I don't even need letters from you. You know who I am and you know what I am. And so we get into chapter five and he starts kind of unpacking some of his heart and some of his motivation, I mean, man, I mean, we, this is a hotbed of good preaching. We can't get to all of it, okay? So he comes down to verse number 14, and he's talking about what makes him tick, what makes him offer, operate. It's not the coffee or the amount of coffee that he has. He tells you right here in verse 14, he makes this statement that makes me just wonder, did Paul know that people would be preaching this centuries after he was dead? Like, this is just one of those statements, right? The, this is powerful. So let me just follow, walk with me through it, okay? For the love of Christ controls us. Uh, some people say that this is our love to Christ. I think it's more of God's love to us, right? And so what it means is it controls us. Kind of a hard way of saying something for us. So let me kind of uh, unpack that a little bit. What he means is this, is that it compels us. It moves us. It motivates us. It zeroes his life down into one purpose, right? You know what I'm talking about? You ever been so focused that nothing else mattered? That's what he's talking about when he says the love of Christ controls us. What he's saying is this is that God's love given to me, poured out on me as a human being, as a sinner, as a broken man, God's love poured out on me. Now what it's done is it has changed my whole perspective on life, okay? It compels me, it narrows me down to one singular overriding purpose. What is it? He says this because we have concluded, we we've, we've come to this conclusion that one died for all Anybody want to take a guess at who the one is? Church answer? Jesus, okay? Jesus died for all. How many of you with me so far? Pay attention to the word all because it's repeated a couple of times in this text. You see it? Notice I didn't make it up, right? He died for all. Therefore, all have died. What he's saying is this. We have reached this conclusion that Jesus Christ has literally shed his blood for every man. The author of Hebrews says that he's tasted death for every man. It means this, that he is the only hope of redemption, that our sin runs so deep that we are such a broken people, that our only hope, we are as hopeless as bodies lining a cemetery that cannot do anything apart from the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. This is what he's saying, okay? And he's saying, We judge this, we've come to this conclusion that one has died for all, therefore all have died because all are in sin. Doesn't matter how in sin you are, you are in sin by birth and by choice. If you didn't know this, you sin automatically. Can I get an amen? Okay, if you didn't know this, you sin by choice. Sometimes, hold up, sometimes I do dumb things. Buckle your seatbelt because I like to do dumb things not you. I mean, this is who I am, right? This is deep within me. It's running in me, okay? And he says, okay, all have died. Therefore, he died for all, again, Jesus died for all, that those who live, in other words, those who have been redeemed by grace, those who have been justified by faith, he's talking about that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Here's Paul's thinking. Because Jesus died for me, I will live for him. Pretty simple, right? I mean, it's really profound logic and flawless logic. If Jesus poured out his life, shed his blood, gave me his grace, then I will use my life to live for him. And Paul says, this isn't, shouldn't just be my opinion, this should be our opinion. This should be the collective opinion of the people of God, that Jesus has poured so much abundant grace on me, that there is nothing better to do with my life than to live it for his fame and his glory. And so now what he does, and then he says this in verse 16, and this kind of seems off at some points, but if you hold it in tension, I think this is beautiful. He says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, It means we don't estimate people the same way anymore. It means this. It means that the way he sees humanity now, both redeemed humanity and not yet redeemed humanity, he's telling us that the love of Christ has so radically changed his heart that it not only affects what he thinks, what he says, what he does, the love of Jesus Christ changes the way that he sees people. People who drive like grandma's. People who don't see the same thing the, the, way, the same way that I do. He's saying it changes the way that I see people. It works all the way down to the core of my being and, and it is a direct response to the transforming work of God's grace in my heart. I cannot long, any longer see people the same way. The love that Christ has given to me, hear me. The love that Christ has given to Paul will not allow him to see people the same way anymore. He says, I cannot hold these in two. I cannot be overwhelmed by the grace of God. In Christ, I am a new man is what he says in verse 17. And part of, an essential part of living in this new way is to see people in new ways. So let's think about what this means very quickly, okay? He contrasts, he defines it like this. We no longer regard anyone according to the what? The flesh, that's the worldly standard. Uh, Paul's culture was very much like ours. Um, They evaluated people's worth, Um, Determine on a number of things, right? So they would look at you and they would go, yeah, we can associate with you because we like you. You make good um, hot dogs, um, which is what we ate, right? Uh, You you drive a cool car. Uh, You're not too tall. Right, we'll change this story real quick, right? You're you're average height. We like you because you're that. And you tall people are ridiculous and the curse of God may ever be upon you. I'm just kidding. I'm really just kidding, okay? Uh, So whatever they would do, but they would look at people and they would judge people based upon who they were born to, how much money they had, what they did as a profession, where they were from, cultural positions, political positions, all of these things. And Paul was raised in this. He was steeped in this. Listen to me. Paul was groomed literally groomed to judge other people based upon who they were and what they did. He was groomed to look at people and say, are you like me or are you not like me? And if you're not like me, I have no room for you. This is how Paul was raised, and so it runs not only in his culture, it runs deep in his own personal history. And what he's telling us here is now that no longer will my tribal affiliations or my cultural opinions, they will not longer be the basis on which I judge other human beings. He knew Christ even that way at one time. His enemies and his detractors know him that way and judge him that way even now, but he says, I'm done with that. I'm no longer judging people by faulty standards or broken measurements that do not tell the whole story or even the real story. I mean, I can't think of the quote now, but it was Robin Williams of all people. This is heartbreaking. If you don't know who Robin Williams was, we're gonna pray for you right after this is over, okay? You need some good comedy in your life. But he said, just don't treat everybody with kindness. You don't ever know what they're going through. And the man took his own life. Isn't that sad? Robin Williams shouldn't be the one that has to tell us that. The scripture tells us that, right? So what Paul is saying here is this, is he's saying, listen, all of these external things, they don't tell the whole story. There's a much bigger things going on. And so what I'm going to do now is all of these other things that enabled me to reduce other people, to stereotype people, to label people, to diminish them or dehumanize them. I will no longer see people that way. I will not reduce people to their labels that culture has given them. Now think about this family, the world around us does, judges, people, and humanity, and a person's worth. I mean, we give stereotypes and labels, and we are not immune to this. As the people of God, we are tempted to put stress on distinctions upon people that are neither based in the revelation of God's word nor are they grounded in the character of Christ. However, people who are transformed by the redeeming work of grace and whose love is fueling, whose God's love is fueling their heart and their life, they can no longer see people the same way. They can no longer engage people from the same perspective. Part of learning and believing and following Jesus is to view people as possessing a dignity and a worth that runs deeper than our eyes can see. Have you ever heard this phrase, human dignity? Do you know where that comes from? Nowhere but God. Nowhere but God. Philosophers have been arguing about this for a long time. And I got some who study philosophy, so again, don't hold me to this. All I know is some things that I've read. I've read one philosopher who said this. Because they're thinking about human dignity is important, meaning worth, human worth, right? You value, you matter, you have some inherent dignity in you. What they're saying is this, we know that's important, but where does that come from? And here's what one philosopher said who is not a theological philosopher. He just said this, he said, it is and can only be a theological concept. In other words, you do not have human dignity apart from God creating you with human dignity. So if anybody gets human dignity, guess who it should be? Raise your hand. It's us that should get human dignity. It should be us. And so what Paul is saying is this, is listen, man, I can no longer evaluate people based off these labels and these stereotypes. I can never dehumanize them or reduce them to these things anymore. The kingdom of God redefines for us who matters and what matters. This is what Russell Moore said. It defines who matters for us and what we've learned and experienced in Jesus Christ will not allow us to view people the same way any longer. The love of Christ compels us to see all people in relation to our redeeming king. Listen, there is a great, great, great problem when we don't see people as being, possessing human dignity and worth and created in the image of God. There is all kinds of fallout. I'll give you one because I'm running out of time. Here it is. What happens is this, is when we don't see people as possessing, Possessing the very dignity that God created them with, and we reduce them to stereotypes and labels, what happens is this, is they become problems. You know some, don't you? Like you are, like your mind went, oh yeah, I got some problems. His name is fill in the blank. His name is Kevin. He's been going too long, we're done, right? I mean, think about this, okay? Whenever we reduce people to problems, problems need what? Solutions, answers. People need more than solutions and answers. People need redemption. And we don't work towards redemption if there are problems. When we reduce people to less than what God has created them to be, they will become our problems. And Paul is very clear. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We don't wrestle against people who drive like grandmas. It feels like it some days, but we don't. Listen, those demons aren't in my son. Can I get real for just a minute? Those demons are in me, okay? So let me give you two lights to see humanity. So if Paul says we don't see people this way anymore, how do we see people? So I'm left-handed. Any left-handed people in the house? Okay, appreciate you, like a couple of you. Just left-handed people living in right-handed worlds feel sorry for us now. It's awful being left-handed, you sorry people in your right-handed world. So I sit at a desk and I have to write, but the way I have to write is I have to shine one light from this way, so that I can see this side of the page. My arm covers it when I write. Because I don't know if you know this, but right-handed people, we write with our whole body. It is a calisthenic exercise for us, okay? So I have to shine a light from this way. But if I only shine a light from that way, then all of this shadows everything that I write. You can't see because I'm going blind. Me and the Apostle Paul are bros, okay? So I have to shine one light from this way, and I have to shine one light from this way. You go to any desk I own, it will have two lamps shining in both directions. Let me give you two lights to see humanity with. One is creation. You can go back and look at it. Genesis chapter one, verse 26. God said, let us make man in our image. Who was God talking to? Himself, <laughs> right? Hebrew language is beautiful there. Hebrew language has singular, it has dual, and it has plural or some version of plural. I don't know what it's called. But singular means one. Dual means plural, means three or more. The word us is not singular. It's not dual. It's plural. Trinity. Wow. Right? Okay. So your mind is blown? Good. Okay. He says, let us make man in our image. And then he begins to form man out of the dust of the ground. Two times in this context, he says, let us make man in our image. Giving the image of God to people is not a new concept. It is not even only a Christian concept. Most Eastern philosophies and religions have thought about this for a long time. However, here's the difference between Eastern faith at that time when Moses wrote this, right? And what Moses was saying in scripture is that Eastern philosophies and religions would say that God has given his image to kings and royalty. And Moses is saying that God has given his image to all men and all women. Okay, And this is what separates the two, that he's not the same as those other dudes, man. He's a different one, right? And so he has stamped his image on all men. Okay, And so it goes on further, not only that, but this is the only place where you find deliberation in creation. I mean, God just shows shows up and he starts speaking things into existence and he forms it all by his word until he gets to humanity. And when he gets to humanity, he doesn't speak it into existence, he forms it with his hands. In chapter two, verse number seven, he breathes his life into only one part of creation and that is humanity. What it's saying is this, is that humans are different. They matter to me. They bear my signature. They are my image bearers. And you say, wait a minute, preacher, aren't we sinners? Right. Did sin take away the image of God from us? No. It distorted the image of God in us, but it didn't take it from us. When You remember that whole big flood thing, right? The Noah guy. We know a guy, right? You know the joke, right? Okay, you know a guy. And after the flood, God says this. He says, hey, Noah, listen, don't shed another man's blood. Anybody wanna remember what the reason was? Because he's created in my image. Fast forward all the way to James. In the New Testament, James says, we use this mouth. To bless God and curse our brother who is made in his image. Sin didn't rob us of the image of God. It's still there. That means this. Rick, you're going to love me here. Okay? That means as C.S. Lewis said, we rub shoulders with no mere mortal. No mere mortal. There is nobody out there that you see, you engage with, that you interact with, regardless of what they think, how they drive, or any of those things. There is nobody that you rub shoulders with who is just human. They are human, and that elevates them above every other thing that they bear the image and signature of God. is this mind-blowing. And so what it does, what it requires us to do, is that we refuse to see people, regardless of what baggage they are carrying, we refuse to see people as less than created in the image of God. We will view people this way. We will view them in light of creation. We will also view them in light of the cross. Listen, it goes back up to verse 14, and that he died for all. What Paul is saying here is this, is I can no longer look at any man and not understand that Jesus has shed his blood and has invested his heart. Listen, not only that God has done a few random acts of kindness for all of the people out there, but God loves them enough to lay down his very life for them. They are not just the objects of his goodness. Please understand me, people are not just the object of God's goodness. They are the object of his affection and his heart. And so when we look at people, what we're doing is we're saying this. We refuse to see any any person less than created in the image of God and less than being what Christ would lay down his life for. We refuse to see people that way. So let me give you a couple of truths. We're going to land this plane. I will tell you this, and if you want these later, I'll give them to you later, but what it means for us to be a redemptive community is that we must have a redemptive view of humanity to do this, okay? So here's what this is. This perspective is not inherited, inherent in you. It is not intuitive. It is a developed skill. In other words, you don't think about this naturally. I don't view people like this instinctively. I view people as my problems instinctively. Sin has not only dehumanized me, it has dehumanized everybody else in my eyes. I'm a broken man. I'm a mixed bag. And I look at people in flawed ways. Hear me, people of God. This is not our reflex. We do not instinctively look at people as created in the image of God and as being the objects of his affection. However, listen, it can be developed. It is a skill that we can grow in. It is a skill that we must grow in. It's something that we must put effort into, that we must put energy. I will tell you this. Listen, please hear me. I'm not the first one to say this, but following Jesus doesn't work as a hobby. It doesn't. You want to do this, and you really want to become this. You got to go all in. There's no hobby in this. This is why our our faith is sometimes shallow, and it never reaches into the depths, is because we're wanting to do it kind of passively and not pour ourselves into it. But if you want to see people as God sees people, listen. It's going to take some work and some effort, and cooperating with the Holy Spirit. This is not your default response. So here's the truth. Okay, it's a developed skill. Here's the second truth. It is a it is shaped by revelation. I don't have time to do this, but no person will ever see another person write unless they have a robust understanding of this book. Now, I'm going to be a thousand percent clear. People have used this book and twisted this book for a thousand different reasons. And because they have, many people don't trust this book. Okay, sit with me for just a second. There are atheists all over the world who have just taken this book and mutilated it, to which this group of people would probably amen. Okay? There are progressive Christians who have taken this book and created a faith that looks absolutely nothing like it or the Jesus of it, to which this group would go, woo yes, that's right. Let me, now, hold on. This is where you can send me all the emails that you're gonna send right after this statement. Nathanbrewer at gmail.com, okay? Listen, there is a form of conservative Christianity that resembles nothing in this book. Nothing in this book What I'm telling you is this, is people have twisted this book to their own ends since it was completed. However, that problem is not that they are too biblical. Hear me. It is that they are not biblical enough. You want to love people well? Have deep and regular and meaningful engagement with this book you won't have it any other way. And I'm not talking about just reading a couple. Listen, there are a thousand different ways to read this, and I'm not shaming any of them. I think all of them are necessary and healthy. We've got people in here, young men who control the sound right now that have read the scripture at 15 minutes a day. Great way to do it. Get in there, develop that habit. It's also good to read this book in big chunks. Big chunks keeps the whole story together. I mean, sit down and read this book. Read the New Testament in 60 days. (gasps) can't do that. Yeah, you can. Some of you read books and one week and you guys are nerds but you can do this right? I mean it can happen right? So here's here's the truth about this perspective, okay? It's not my default, it is shaped by scripture, it has to be fueled by love. I will tell you the only gr- people who are gracious are people who are overwhelmed by grace. Hey, listen. If you're a decent person, you can't grasp grace. You don't need grace. But if you are broken to your core, you get grace. I mean, you get it, right? When somebody forgives you, and the last thing that you deserved was to be forgiven when somebody gives you that, not because you deserve it, but because that's who they are. Have you not felt your heart leap within you when somebody has extended to you radical grace? Listen to me, dear friend. God has not extended to you just kind of grace. He's given you amazing grace. Deep and powerful and profound. And when people are overwhelmed by the grace of God, listen, it doesn't, you don't have to force them or twist their arm to be gracious to other people. I can't be anything than gracious to people because God has been gracious to me, okay? Here's the last thing, okay? It is practical and it's outworking. This is not a theology class. This is not just seeing people this way in theory, This is seeing people this way so that we live and interact and engage with people this way. So, here's what I'm saying. I think it's time for us to kind of rethink how we exist in and engage culture. Okay? And I think that has to do more with who we are than what we do. And I think what that takes is it takes a very biblically high view of the church. I think it takes this deeply humble view of ourselves. I think it takes this very radically appreciative understanding of grace. And I think it takes this redemptive view of humanity. I'll give you three practices. You have to learn them on your own that will foster this, that will nurture this. One is read things that enlarge your heart. How many of you read the things you like? How many of you ignore the things you don't like? Okay, me too, right? Read things that enlarge your heart. I'll give you two recommendations. We don't sell books here, right, Nathan? We don't sell books. We believe in one book, right? Everybody with me? These books are like fish. You eat what you can, and you get rid of the bones, okay? They're not flawless. I will tell you, though, this should be on your reading list. Dignity Revolution talks about human worth and dignity. You should read it. Matter of fact, if you read this, you could have saved yourself a whole sermon today, okay? Irresistible faith is another one. It just talks about loving people and being a witness in culture that's different than what we've been taught. Read something that not only enlarges your noggin, read something that enlarges your heart. Because listen, in the words of the famous theologian Willie Nelson, we can't keep living insisting that the world keep turning our way, right? I dropped a C.S. Lewis quote and I dropped a Willie Nelson quote. And I even backdoored a Dr. Dre quote in there that none of you guys really even knew. So I knew it though, okay? Okay, so read something that enlarges your heart, okay? Listen to people beyond the externals. So when Robbie sits down and he talks to me, there's more going on than what Robbie's saying. Is that true? There's a lot. I'm giving you a lot of credit, right? Robbie's like, there's not a lot going on up here at all. Sarah's like, amen, best preaching I've heard all day. A, no, I'm just kidding, Right? But you know there's so much more than when you ask me a question. There's so, listen, anybody have a long week? Anybody hard up against it? Man, I'm 60 hours into this week and I'm, I'm exhausted, right? So you ask me how I'm doing, I say I'm fine, but that's loaded. And so what it requires of us to see people this way is it, it requires us to listen beyond what they say. Do some research on active listening and grow some of your skills there. So read things that enlarge your heart, listen to beyond the conversation and this. Sit at a table with somebody who's not like you. The old theologians call this practice hospitality. Sit at a table because table lowers your defenses and everybody loves food, right? Everybody loves food. Sit at a table. We tend to sit at tables with people who are like us. Sit at a table with somebody who's not like you. And what this will do, this is, this is not the end. This is not the goal. What these do is they build spiritual muscle And it transforms our hearts so that we begin to see people as dignified and possessing worth that God has given them and that God his own son has laid down his life for. What if in this moment, cultural moment filled with hostility and rage and division and hatred, what if Grace Harbor stood out like a sore thumb as a love-driven, life-giving people where it's safe to be different? Stand with me. Father, we bow right now in Jesus' name, and we are just grateful that you are who you are. We are grateful that you love us and that you redeem us, not because we have all these things figured out and we're doing all these things well or we have it all together. Father, you love us in spite of the fact that we, our tendency, our natural default is not to do this at all like we would prefer, it would be better, it would be easier, it would be more comfortable for us to even avoid topics like this altogether. And Father, I pray that you would press us into this, that you would help us to lean into this, however uncomfortable that might be for us. And I pray that you would revive our view and our understanding of the people that we rub shoulders with every day, that there are no mere mortals, that they are bearing your signature and carrying your image, regardless of how distorted that image may be. And may you give us a heart that beats for them as your heart does, so much so that we would lay down our very lives for them. Father, I pray that you would just make us something that we will never become outside of your grace. Give us this redemptive view of other people that we might be a redemptive community. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we sing and prepare for communion.